Revelation three fourteen to 22 Hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Hans Christian Andersen wrote a story about a very vain emperor. And this emperor liked nothing more than to be dressed in finery. Uh, everything he did was to show off his clothes. And he had clothes for every hour of the day, for every occasion, and he didn't really care about reviewing the troops, he just wanted to show off his new clothes. And so, uh, one day, uh, a couple swindlers came into town, and they began to talk about this fabric that they were able to weave. And it was the most amazing fabric that anybody had ever seen, but there was a catch to it because not everybody could see it. Those who were either exceptionally stupid or unworthy of their position were not able to see it. And the king thought, this will be great. If I have clothes made of that fabric, then I can find out who is not worthy of their position in my kingdom. So he thought, this is just what I need. And so they asked for lots of money, and they asked for gold thread, and they asked for silk, and they asked for all these fabrics, which went right into their traveling bags. And they got their looms, and they began to weave. And they worked every night and late into the nights, and people could see that they were working late into the nights and burning the the candles. And and the king thought, I wonder how it's going. And so I'll send somebody, I'll, I'll send one of my older trusted ministers to go see how the fabric is. And so this old and very honest minister went in and they were working feverishly on the looms and to his horror, he couldn't see the fabric. But he realized that only those who were exceptionally stupid or uh, were unworthy of their positions couldn't see it. And so he he went along and they said, what do you think of it? He said, it's beautiful. He remarked on the colors and the scheme and so on. And then he went back and told the king, it's amazing. And then the king sent another of his ministers and same reaction. It was the most amazing fabric they'd ever seen. And then the king said, I'd like to see it myself. And so he took a number of his ministers in and went to go see it himself. And the king was uh, upset when he saw it or rather 
didn't see it, but he thought, well, that's not possible that, that I should be unfit for my position, so I'll play along as well. And so he said, it's marvelous and wonderful. And there was a, a procession coming up, and, and the word got out that the king was going to be dressed in this amazing fabric, these new clothes, and they were working and cutting and sewing, and, and, and the day came and everybody was anticipating, but everybody knew that not everybody could see it. The only ones who could see it were those who were worthy of their position and had intelligence. And so uh, the king tried it on, and they said, by the way, it's so light, it feels like you have nothing on. And so he took off his clothes, and they dressed him in his new suit, and he stood in front of the mirror and saw himself, and he remarked about how amazing it fit and looked, and, and his ministers picked up the train of it, and he went out and he marched down the street, and everybody was ooing and aahing about this, this amazing set of clothes that the emperor had. And then a little boy was standing there with his dad and said, but he doesn't have anything on. And the dad said, oh, oh it's just a, a childish comment. But then the word started getting out. The little boy said he doesn't have anything on. And the word went out that he doesn't have anything on. And all of a sudden the crowd was saying, but he doesn't have anything on. And the emperor was afraid that that might be the case. And so what he did is he marched all the more proudly down the street with his ministers in tow carrying his train. The emperor's new clothes. Well, the church in Laodicea was like that emperor. They were walking around proudly in what they thought was their glory. But somebody had to come along and tell them, that they were naked, that they didn't have anything on. And Jesus was the one who did that. And as always, we have the letter starting with a description of Jesus. As we have seen in all of these letters, the description tends to come out of the vision that we saw in chapter 1. The vision of Jesus. And, and normally, in, in five of the seven letters, what, uh, what Jesus does is He picks some detail or details out of that original vision, and then He presents Himself in that way. But in these last two letters, He varies from that pattern, and He brings in other things that are not exactly related to that vision. However, in this case, He picks three words from chapter 1 that show up. So in, in, in our text, it says... And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. And if we go back to chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 5 and 7, you will see that he picks out three words, not from the vision, but from the this beginning part uh, in chapter 1, verse 5 to 7. And it says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there are three words that he picks out of that section. He picks faithful, witness, and amen. The only place, the only other place where this word amen is used as part of a title is in Isaiah 65, verse 16 where we read, it's translated in this version, the God of truth, but literally it's the God of Amen. And that's what Amen is. It is verily, it is truth. And uh, here, it's referring to Jesus, that He is the Amen. Once again, taking a title of God 
and applying it to Jesus. We've seen how that happens a number of times in these verses. So together, the Amen, the faithful witness, all this is emphasizing that Jesus tells the truth. Jesus tells the truth. Now that prepares us for what's coming in this letter. Because Jesus is about to tell this church some truth. He is about to witness faithfully. He is about to declare the Amen, that that which is verily true. And it will be shocking truth. And it will be, at first glance, unbelievable truth. It looks like that it is not true. And so, uh, before he announces that, he says, I always tell the truth. I'm the Amen. I'm the faithful witness. So prepare for what's coming. It also describes him as the beginning of God's creation. The beginning of God's creation. That means that he is the source or he is the origin of God's creation. And we find this actually in a number of places. When we think about the creation, we think about God creating the heavens and the earth. And that's absolutely true. But uh, in addition to God creating the heavens and the earth, the, the Son of God is the agent of creation. We think about the beginning of uh, the Bible. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. Then we get to the Gospel of John, the first verses of the Gospel of John. If you want to look it up, it's in nine, uh, page 981 in, in the Bibles that you have. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that has been made. So what do we have here? Jesus is declaring Himself as the, the true witness, the one who tells the truth, and He's the Creator as well. He is the one who made all things. After that, After the description of Jesus, what do we have? What we have in all the letters. The condition of the church. And in five of the seven letters, he begins by saying, I know your works. And in some cases, he details what those works are. But in this case, he gives a summary. He says, I know your works. And then the summary statement is this. You are neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. Now, because they were lukewarm, Jesus says, I'm about to spit you out. This is very, very uh, graphic here. It could be translated, vomit you out. He's saying, I find you so distasteful that I need to get you out. So he's, he's using the image of, of, of a drink. And, and, and this drink, which is the church in Laodicea, is so distasteful that he, he wants to Remove them from his mouth. Now, for most of my years of reading Revelation, I had thought that this meant that Jesus prefers an honest unbeliever to a lukewarm Christian. And that may be, that may be correct. That may be correct. And I certainly find in my conversations with people, I would much rather talk to a Uh, an atheist, a sincere atheist, than a lukewarm Christian. Because when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, the atheist knows that he or she does not believe that. But the lukewarm Christian thinks, oh yeah, I got that. Everything's cool. I don't need what you have. I don't need to listen to you. So I, I, I can understand if this means Jesus saying, I would rather you be stone cold against me rather than kind of lukewarm. I thought that that's what it meant, but recently I've come 
to probably a different conclusion, although I still see merit in that first interpretation, I think now, rather, that I think what he's saying is, um, hot drink is useful, cold drink is useful. So, I wish you were one or the other. Uh, hot drink is soothing, cold drink is refreshing, but lukewarm? That's neither one nor the other. That's just blah. That's just in the middle. It doesn't really soothe us. It doesn't really refresh us. So I think that's probably what he's saying. Not saying, you know, I'd rather you be an atheist than lukewarm. He's probably saying, I'd rather you be useful for something. I would rather you be refreshing. I would rather you be comforting one or the other rather than good for nothing. Good for nothing. I think that's what he's saying to them. You are good for nothing. Now, why were they good for nothing? Why were they lukewarm in their attitude? They were lukewarm in their attitude and they ended up being good for nothing because of their self-importance, their inflated idea of themselves. And we find their opinion about themselves in the beginning of verse 17. And he says, For you say, you, the Laodicean church, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. This actually, it says, I am rich, and then the next word, I have prospered, means I have become rich, I have made myself rich. So not only were they rich, but they were self-made rich. So they were not saying, oh, we've inherited a bunch. Well, when somebody inherits something, that they didn't do anything to get it. So they're saying, I, I'm not only rich, but I'm rich because I, I made this money myself and I need nothing. They were self-content. They were self-satisfied. And Jesus has to come along to them and tell them what they're really like. Their city was very wealthy. Laodicea was very wealthy. And it was so wealthy, in fact, that when there was an earthquake in 60 A.D., which destroys some of the cities that we've talked about, we, such as the city we saw last week, Philadelphia. Some of these other cities needed imperial aid, aid from the Roman Empire to rebuild. But uh, uh, Laodicea said, no thanks, we don't need it, we'll do it ourselves. Can you imagine? That's how wealthy they were, that they refused government aid because they were so self-sufficient. They could do it themselves, and they rebuilt their city all by themselves. The Christians, it looked like, looks like, had the same attitude as the city. No thanks. Don't need your help. We have this taken care of. We have our own resources. Don't need your help. Thank you very much. Now, we can gauge our own spiritual temperature by seeing these things, by seeing how useful we are to others, and also how self-satisfied we are with ourselves. These are, these are warning signs, and we need to apply these to ourselves. Why? Because the last ones who know that they're lukewarm are who? Lukewarm. The lukewarm, exactly. So we need, to, we need help to try to take our temperature so that we're not simply saying, yeah, those lukewarm people over there, where we're the ones who really are. So we need to ask, are we useful? Are our lives useful for others? Are they comforting to others? Are they refreshing to others? Are they having that effect in others? And we can ask ourselves, are we content? 
self-satisfied, content with what we've been able to do before God and before others. Jesus, the Amen, the faithful witness, comes and says, actually, even though you say, I am rich, I'm a self-made person, I don't need anything, he says, actually, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Shocking. Shocking truth. And that's why he says, I'm telling you the truth. I always tell the truth. Listen to me. This is your situation. They were very much like Hans Christian Andersen's emperor. They were parading through the streets, showing off their spiritual and material finery. And Jesus is the one who says, but they don't have anything on. They're wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. They were self-deceived. And so He calls them. We've always seen that. He identifies Himself. He describes the condition of the church. And He calls the church to respond. Now the first call sounds very odd. We find this in verse 18. The first counsel sounds odd or even cruel. He says, I counsel you to buy from Me. Now, why does that sound cruel? He has just told them that they're what? They're poor. That they don't have anything. Doesn't that sound cruel to you to go to a poor person and say, oh, you need to buy something so that you can be rich, so that you can have what you need. You need to buy something. And the poor person would say what? I don't have anything with which to buy. But this is actually the point here. The point here is... As we find in Isaiah 55, this reflects Isaiah 55. We've seen how much these letters reflect the the prophecy of Isaiah. Listen to this invitation in Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 3. It's on page 686. Here's an invitation from God. Come, everyone who who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David." This invitation that Jesus is giving to the church is the same invitation that God gave to Israel. Come, you who have nothing. Come, buy from me. You say, how can somebody who has nothing buy anything from anybody? He says, buy from me. Gold refined by fire. What's this gold refined by fire? It's probably, as First Peter uses the image, the image, it's probably faith itself. Uh, in First Peter chapter 1, verse 5, uh, or verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first thing that they need is faith. Come acquire faith from Jesus Christ. And then, it says, that in addition to faith, they need white garments. Oh, by the way, 
Laodicea was famous for a number of things. Not only was it wealthy, they also were a center of uh, fabric, wool fabric, but it was black wool fabric. They were famous for that, and they also had a nearby medical school. So they prided themselves on their money, on their black wool fabric, and on their medical school. And here he says, what you really need is gold from me, because you're really poor. What you really need are white garments from me, you who produce black clothing. Uh, And then you also need, you med school patrons need to buy eye ointment. You need salve from me so that you might see things as they really are. But what is this? What is this? Asking poor people to buy. How are they going to get it from Jesus? Well, that's just the point. They have nothing to offer. And he's, he's really pushing that in their face and saying, you don't have anything, but you need to get these things from me. How are they going to be able to get them? How are we going to be able to get anything from God if we have nothing to offer Him, nothing by which to buy anything from Him? And the only answer to that is, as a gift. As a gift. Come, you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Without money, come buy. How can we do that? Only if He gives it to us freely. That's the point. He showed them their empty pockets. Then He said, I have what you need. I have true faith, genuine faith. I have righteousness with which you might clothe yourselves. I have uh, the ability to give you the uh, the ability to, to see things as they are. Come get these from Me, you who have nothing to offer. This is what the Bible calls grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can do what? No one can boast. No one can boast. And that's what they were doing. They were boasting about all that they had, all that they had accomplished. And he said, silence this boasting among you. Realize you have nothing to offer me, but I have everything to offer you. So come apply to me for what you need and I will give it to you freely. Freely. Without cost to you. Without cost to you. But not without cost to Him. Sometimes when I would present the Gospel to people in Mexico... They were used to this idea of, as most human beings are, by the way, this is nothing against Mexico, but it was very, very, uh, very much a part of the culture, this idea that if you do certain things, you could get God's favor. You could sort of click off some boxes and purchase it. And I would present the gospel, and they would often say to me, as they heard it, they'd say, I see the fossil. That easy? And I'd say, easy for whom? Easy for us? Yes. Así de fácil. Yes, it's that easy. Easy for God? No. Because it cost Him the life of His Son. Why is it free to us? Because it was costly for Him. That's what grace is. Sometimes we, sometimes we talk about grace as being without condition. But the condition was that the Son of God gave His life for us. So the condition that we might have what we need freely has already been satisfied. 
And so that's the first call. Recognize your destitution, recognize your poverty, and receive from me freely what you need by faith. The second call is to be zealous and to repent. Verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. This word zealous or passionate or fervent, we can see that this is the opposite of lukewarmness, isn't it? So you who are kind of lukewarm, blah, about me, about everything, he's saying, stir up some passion in yourself. And this is another good test for us about our spiritual temperature. If we are lukewarm, that is lacking in fervor, lacking in passion, lacking in in zeal for the Scripture, for prayer, for evangelization, for worship, for service, for love of neighbor. We should take our spiritual temperature and if we find it lacking, he says, stir it up. Be fervent, be passionate and repent. And here, Jesus makes explicit his his motive for calling them to repentance. In verse 19, he says, those whom I, what's it say? Love. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. This is remarkable. Why? This is the worst of the seven churches. Even in, even in Sardis, there were a few who were faithful. But here, he doesn't mention any like that. This is, this is the, this is the worst of the churches, and it's the only one to whom Jesus expressly declares his love. The only one. And so here we see grace that's pouring out from Jesus. He especially describes, or says to these, these Laodicean Christians, these lukewarm Christians, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you the truth because I love you. Now, this is what recalls what we already saw in Proverbs chapter three, that God reproves those whom he loves. And it also reminds us to be careful not to take advantage of God's love toward us. In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? That's what He's saying. I love you. I'm being kind to you. Why? To lead you to repentance. Because I love you so much. It is remarkable that Jesus explicitly expressed the word, the, 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 his love to this worst of churches. And it's also remarkable that in this, to this worst of churches, he gave the greatest promises. He, he, the promises are, are, are lavish here. In verses 20 to 22, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This illustration of Jesus standing at the door, what door? He's standing at the door of the church. Now think about how pathetic this image is. There the church is, merrily doing its religious things. But where's Jesus? Jesus is outside the church. This is a church without Jesus. Even though they were so prominent and prosperous, they're probably well thought of. But where was Jesus? Jesus was on the outside. Think about that. 
Jesus on the outside of the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus on the outside of His own church. Excluded from His own church. But what's He doing? He's not walking away. He's standing outside the door of His own church. And He's knocking. He's knocking. How humiliating. How humiliating for Him who should be at the center of that church being worshipped and served and adored to be outside knocking on the door of His own church. How humiliating. And here we see the depths to which Jesus was willing to go to sink in humiliation to express His love for the church. But it gets worse than this. Paul tells us that that He who existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be held onto, but He emptied Himself. He took on the form of humans and He became a servant and He humbled Himself to the point of death and not just any death, but the most humiliating, degrading death, death on a cross where He was hung naked for us. That's the the depth of the humiliation of Jesus. He hung naked so that we who are naked might be clothed in His robes of righteousness. And what does He say to that church? If anyone, if anyone in the church hears My voice and opens the door, we'll eat together. I'll come in and we will have rich friendship. And here the, the invitation once again is individual. And, and this probably strikes us as, as strange. Why? Because if we're in a church and we don't like something, what do we do? We leave and we go to another church. There wasn't another church in those cities. There was a church. There was no going to another church. There was responding to the voice of Jesus and opening the door and having fellowship and friendship with Him that new life might enter into that church through one or two or three who would hear His voice and open the door. And in addition to that rich friendship, that intimate friendship, He promised a place on His throne. And once again, this is, this is shocking. To the worst of churches, He's promising the most exalted privileges, dining with Him and sitting on His throne. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. Amazing. He's saying, even as I conquered, and I sat down on my Father's throne, I'm going to give you a place on my throne. He says this to the lukewarm church. If anyone will hear, if anyone will respond, they will sit with Jesus in His reign. Now Jesus sat down, as we already read in Hebrews earlier in the service, He sat down. He sat down after He had made purification for sins. He sat down because the work was done. And he says, come sit with me, because this work has been done for you.
come sit on my throne, even as I sit on my Father's throne. Well, that brings us to the end of these seven churches. What have we learned? What have we heard if we have ears to hear? We have heard, to summarize, that we, as a church, need to practice church discipline. That's the first thing. We need to be faithful unto death without fear. We need to repent of immorality. We need to hold fast onto solid teaching until Jesus comes again. We need to remember how we heard the gospel at the beginning and keep hearing it in that same way. We need to hold fast to what we have. And we need to receive true riches from Jesus through faith in Him. And if we conquer, if we conquer by believing and being faithful to the end, listen to what we'll receive. Thinking about these seven churches. He says, To the conqueror I will give eternal life, escape from eternal punishment, spiritual satisfaction, authority over the nations, eternal security, a permanent relationship with God, and participation in Jesus' reign. Are we any different than we were when we started this series? Florida Coast Church. He's been speaking to us every week, even as He has been speaking to these seven churches. And so, once again, we hear the invitation to each of us individually and to us as a church. If you have ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Our God, we do apply to You because we know we can't see things aright. We can't have riches before You. We can't have righteousness before You unless You give these things to us. And we can't even have ears to hear and believe unless You grant that to us. Oh God, we apply to You again in the name of Jesus and ask that You would give us these things. And we pray, O oh God, for ourselves as individuals that we would hear and believe, and keep believing until the end. And we pray for ourselves as Florida Coast Church, that as we navigate through our future, that we would avoid the pitfalls into which some of these churches fell, and then that we would follow these churches, the ones that served you faithfully, and held on to what you had given them. And we pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.